I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. And I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And this is World Footprints. In this episode, we will explore two communities, one in the U.S. and one in Ecuador. What they have in common is their isolation, not total, from the larger societies around them. First, if you find yourself in Brooklyn, New York, a unique community makes its home there. The Hasidic community, defined as much by its Jewish faith and Eastern European roots and culture, is prominent even as it is not well known or understood. But Freya Vazell knows Brooklyn's Hasidic community very well and uses her tour company to present an up-close and immersive experience of a slice of Brooklyn she calls her own. Williamsburg is very trendy, it's a very happening place, but the south side is where there's a huge Hasidic enclave and they're very isolated, um, like a complete ecosystem of their own shops and schools and architecture within the melting pot of New York City. An inquiry about communities and cultures that are dying led us to connect with Marcel Perkins of Latin Trails and the discovery of the Waurani people of Ecuador. This community has chosen to remain isolated from society for the most part, but has dealt with pressures from opening its lands to tourism and petroleum exploration in order to survive. Marcel shares his insights into the Warani people of Ecuador as the head of an inbound tour company. When they were doing tourism, they, you know, it wasn't that you know, they were 100% engaged in it. They were just doing it because the tribe leader you know, maybe was a little bit more uh, occidentalized, if you want to call it that way. And he was uh, interested in receiving the, the funds for that. So he allowed tourism into his community. Since he was a leader, the community was okay with it. And then eventually, well, more money came from petrol companies, and that actually replaced the tourism operation. So let's start touring. A little less travel and more cultural exploration. This is World Footprints with Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Frida Vizel knows Brooklyn, New York's Hasidic community in an intimate way. Through her tours by Frida, she not only shares the knowledge of the religion, but the food, culture, and architecture that defines the neighborhoods of Brooklyn that provide an enclave to an insular and often misunderstood people. The Hasidic community's history is so fascinating. Give us, Frida, the cliff note version of the beginning of Hasidism with Baal Shem Tov, who I understand is the founder of the Hasidic faith. The Hasidic movement is a subculture, a faith system within um, Jewish orthodoxy that began in Eastern Europe. The very first practitioner of Hasidism was the Baal Shem Tov, and the thing that was revolutionary, was very unique about the Hasidim was that it centered around an individual, a tzaddik, a rabbi with whom um, the practitioners, the followers would worship, sing, and dance. It introduced to Orthodox Judaism a very intimate relationship with a leader. And this goes back to the 18th century. The Baal Shem Tov was in Ukraine, uh, but it spread all over Eastern Europe up until World War II, which almost decimated the entire Hasidic movement. And the revival of the Hasidic movement was 
post-Holocaust in New York, some in Israel, several areas in throughout the world where the, the Hasidic movement has transplanted itself after the war and continued in this system of belonging to a dynasty and worshipping and following according to that rabbi's understanding of the Hasidic movement. Mm -hmm. So its genesis in the United States was as a result of World War II and uh, the genocide of Jewish community throughout Europe. How was the Hasidic movement then received when they started coming to the United States? Hasidim were very ambivalent about the United States even before the war because they understood that the United States was a place of assimilation and they didn't want to come to America. They had no choice after the war. For instance, my mother was born in Czechoslovakia. It was communist. There was, there was no choice but to come to a place where religious freedom was a possibility. And the states also was changing and becoming more pluralistic, more open to multiculturalism. So it became more hospitable to the Hasidic community. But the Hasidim came from the very beginning with two impressions about America. From the one end, they felt like it was a bad place of assimilation, but they also had experienced Americans as the agents of the liberation at the end of the war. And it was a sense of gratitude, but also almost fear that that gratitude can lead to the loss of identity that I think we see to this day in the Hasidic community. That loss of identity, is that part of what fuels a belief or a perception that uh, the Hasidic community has isolated itself? Yes, very much. The Hasidic community has been driven by a real existential angst for a long time, um, from the beginning of modernity and, and they have transplanted themselves paradoxically in New York um, where there's this melting pot and usually within one generation immigrants assimilate, but they also were very determined not to lose their identity and that's why they're isolated within New York in a geographic area. And I speak especially of the Hungarian Hasidim war in Brooklyn's Williamsburg. It's a Brooklyn... Williamsburg is very trendy, it's a very happening place, but the south side is where there's a huge Hasidic enclave and they're very isolated, um, like a complete ecosystem of their own shops and schools and architecture within the melting pot of New York City. In spite of that isolationism, Hasidic Jews are opening themselves up to the rest of the world, to the secular world, through tours. How, how, how is that balance being struck? And I guess uh, the bigger part is, given that isolationism, how, how is this opening up to other communities through tours going over in the community? Well, there so there are a couple of Hasidic groups. There is a Hasidic group in one part of Brooklyn called Crown Heights. And in Crown Heights, we have the Lubavitch group. They are very open and they hope to share a positive um, message 
in their tours. It's it's seen as complementary to their community, but they're also not as insular. I give tours in Williamsburg where we have almost all of the people in Williamsburg, all the Hasidim are from Holocaust survivors or Holocaust survivors themselves. And I'm actually the only one to give tours there. And it's definitely something people accept with mixed feelings. You know, they're, they're not entirely comfortable. There are a lot of bus tours that come through the neighborhood, mostly Spanish language from Spain, um, Catalonia. They are, the Hasidic community is not very comfortable with being a tourist attraction, being gawked at. So they're, they're definitely not accepting tourism with open arms. They're not officiating tourism themselves. But they are very used to being in the same environment as others. And I've been very surprised by how much less, um, like how curious people have been about us, how open people have been to asking us about where we come from, you know, us, I mean, the tourists. Aha. Uh-huh. And, and what about some of the, the Holocaust um, survivors that are in the uh, the area, I think you said Williamsburg. Uh, what are some of their stories, and, and do they uh, interact with some of the, the people that you bring through on your tours? Well, on several occasions during my tours, I have run into people who volunteered their stories. Um, people, the Hasidic people in Williamsburg are very, very... Um, cognizant of mass trauma, you know, the tremendous loss. And when there's an occasion to remember, they will volunteer. They will say, see, here are are my numbers. You know, this old woman stretches out her arms and shows me the tattooed, her arm and she shows the tattooed number from, from the war. Um, And, and I'll hear age at which someone was, um, in the war and who they lost, you know, people will volunteer their story. But I think that's in general, the Hasidic community in Williamsburg, they're very open about the Holocaust and the past and how much they had lost in the war. What about the Hasidic community in Borough Park, which I believe is another large um, community of uh, Hasidic uh, Jewish um people. Borough Park, so there, there are three main neighborhoods in, in New York City where there are Hasidim, Williamsburg, Crown Heights, and Borough Park. Williamsburg are Holocaust survivors, mostly Hungarian region, Hungarian, Romanian, Czechoslovakian. Um, they are the most insular. Ironically, they're also in the most trendy part of Brooklyn. Hmm. We have Crown Heights, which is the Lubavitch movement, and they're much more open. And in Borough Park, we have like an eclectic mix of everything. And um, Borough Park, we, I, I see in Borough Park a lot more of a modernization. Like in Borough Park, I see smartphones. In Williamsburg, people hide their smartphones. We don't see smartphones <laughs> in the streets. They Bar have Park, them, but they hide them, right? Well, 
we don't know who has them. I wish I would know who has them. <laughs> you can't, you can't really, even, even asking people, you get so many different answers. Some people will say, oh no, it's going away. And other people say, everyone is hiding it. But definitely the children don't have smartphones. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Borough Park, I saw these kids after school get slushies at a kosher restaurant, which I, was such an American, it's such a public, like my son's in public school, they would do that. After school, they go to 7-Eleven. It was very striking to me as something I would never see in Williamsburg where the kids don't linger in like a sit-down restaurant. So Bar Park often is, is almost like the place through which modernity is filtered into the more, like they introduce the more modern elements Mm-hmm. that sometimes make their ways. Like first sushi comes to Bar Park and then it ends up in Williamsburg <laughs> a few years later. What are some of the big misperceptions about the Hasidic community? For me, one of the things that people consistently misunderstand is that the Hasidic community is isolated economically. Folks don't assume that you know they're, they're just all sitting and studying the Torah but there is an extreme economic vibrance and a lot more interaction with the secular world economically than culturally. They, they get married and go out to work. And New York City is very, a very good place for a person from a completely different culture with a broken English to succeed economically despite these challenges. So the, the, Hasidic community is involved in real estate. They are involved in electronics um, sales. They're involved in in selling on Amazon and whatever they can they can um, get into, despite being culturally very much not in the loop with with the larger New York City. So, Frida, I read somewhere that the Hasidic movement is all about love joy and humility and then I saw an interview with a young uh, Hasidic who said he was discouraged growing up he was discouraged from making friends from other cultures or you know interacting with people who don't look like him and I and I'm trying to kind of reconcile the the basis of love joy and humility with um on its face appears discriminatory. How can you help me understand? <laughs> it's a very good question. Um, but I think, I think especially the post-Holocaust Hasidic community is more concerned with its survival than with, um, you know, lofty ideas like, like love. They're very cognizant of how easy it is to be absorbed by the larger culture. And a lot of what they do by not um, watching TV, by not um, having smartphones, by not having internet in the houses, by not bringing in a secular education, it stems from this belief that interacting will cause the dissolution of their way of life and their way of life is could be very loving. It could be, I mean, humans are humans sure. um, to each other. And also, you know, there's definitely 
a cultural generosity. There's an overall generosity. There's a sense that we don't leave others behind. But it's never superseding the anxiety about being swallowed up mm-hmm. by the by the melting pot. I mean, you have to rec- realize this is a community that's on to, I think it's fifth generation. They came here in the 1940s. And usually by the second generation, the children are choosing to, to go off. There, there's no other culture where the kids grow up still speaking as a first language, a completely different language than the host community. My first language was Yiddish because I grew up in the Hasidic community and that was the case for my son and that's the case for the children there today. So the, these things would not have happened if the community didn't prioritize its existence, its survival over, you know, love and <laughs> other other concepts sure so in in the last uh, minute that we have um tell us a little bit about you know your tours i mean what would an outsider see learn and experience what would you want for them to take away from one of your tours well i want them to appreciate that there are so many different ways communities can organize themselves and that there is value to be had, but also things that you lose in the process. That's something that I take away from visiting the Hasidic community. We see a neighborhood that is filled with children, so many children. The children are very comfortable and very safe running around in the streets. We see a neighborhood with a lot of human interaction, more than we see in the rest of the city. Um, we we see very unique shops um, that are all localized shops. You know, there, there's not that big conglomerates. We, we get a sense for how much people prioritize supporting each other over, you know, the the next big economic, you know, huge company where you can get, um, the, you know, the best prices. It's, it's really a communal oriented, um, neighborhood and it's, it's, it's mind boggling. It's really fascinating to see how things can be so different within, you know, cheek to jowl with the hipster part of, of Brooklyn. And I think that's something worth thinking about. To explore Hasidic Brooklyn, visit Frida Vizel, spelled F-R-I-E-D-A-V-I-Z-E-L dot com, or click on the link on this show page at worldfootprints.com. You're listening to the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Travel deeper, explore and keep meaningful conversations going by visiting our website, worldfootprints.com. And make sure you sign up for our newsletter and receive a special gift we have just for subscribers.
The Warani people live deep inside Ecuador's Amazons. If you've never heard of them, that's not a surprise, as the community has chosen to remain non-contacted for the most part. With the small community numbering in the hundreds by some estimates, the Warani have moved from tourism to petroleum revenue to keep their community intact as a way to minimize their contact with the outside world. Marcel Perkins of Latin Trails joins us along with his barking dogs from Ecuador to share some insights about the Warani, but with a caution to travelers to leave them alone. Marcel, who are the Warani people? The Warani people are a tribe in Ecuador. Um, they're actually spread out mainly throughout the Yasuni National Park. And they are one of the few tribes that has preferred to remain non-contacted. Although uh, there has been uh, several attempts to contact them, they haven't always ended up nicely, actually. Uh, you know, years back, there was um, uh, a religious group, of, of the Catholic religion priests, uh, missionaries were in contact, and they actually had lived with the community for a few years. And one day out of nothing, the community went and killed them. Now, I know that made national news. That was, what, back in the 40s, 50s, I think, when that contact yeah. occurred? Yeah, but, yeah, well, the contact, yes. But then uh, this, uh, the last killing was actually in the 80s. It, the, the, the whole thing comes down to they're not, not everybody agrees into being in contact with, you know, uh, with, the, with the, the civilization, basically. There's some people from the communities um, you know, there's some people from the communities and um, they have, um, I mean, they have been in contact with the civilization. They, you actually can find them. And you're, if you're in the town of Coca, which is closer to the Yasuni Park, or in Puyo, you actually can find people from the Walrani community shopping in a supermarket eventually. But, you know, this is, there's several families or, 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 or small groups that, you know, I mean, that would, would or not want to be in contact basically. So how many, um, how many Wawarani exist in the population today? Or what is Let's the size see. of the, what is the size of the Wawarani population today? Well, the exact number, it, it, it's, it's hard to determine because of their, they remain actually at the moment, they remain non-contacted basically. That's, that's the, um, that's the main uh, status of them. Then, I mean, you could say that, you know, they, they're numbered as about 600. That's all. That, that surprises me that that's small. Probably guessing there's more because there is parts of them that, you know, were in contact. And actually recently there used to be two lodges that worked with the Wawarani on a regular basis. And this is, you know, taking travelers to visit them. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, it wasn't that, it, you know, that they weren't in contact, but not, not all of them were happy with that. Talk to us about that. It seems that there that that is controversial. I mean, to bring tourists to a group of people who who have had minimal contact, it it just seems that that wouldn't go over. No, absolutely. I think um, I think well. It, here's the thing: it's not you know the people that were guiding the people that were you know in contact with the. Waurani and, and, and the Wauranis themselves that were in contact with visitors, they actually did want to be in contact at some point. 
And um, the last project, which was actually very successful at some point, uh, it was um, it was called Guarani Ecolodge. Now that last project did not close because of them not wanting to be in contact. Unfortunately, it closed because of um, agreements with the petrol companies mm. that entered to exploit the area. And of course, they gave them compensation for entering their area. And that compensation was much more than that they would ever get from tourism. So they basically, they, they, they had a, I mean, the leaders had so much money at that point that they didn't really care of, you know, really being in contact again with people or anything like that. So it's a tribe that, you know, uh, when they do, to, when they were doing tourism, they, you know, it wasn't that, you know, they were a hundred percent engaged in it. They were just doing it because the tribe leader, you know, maybe was a little bit more, uh, Occidentalized, if you want to call it that way, and he was uh, interested in receiving the the funds for that. So mm-hmm. he allowed tourism into his community since he was a leader. The community was okay with it, and then eventually, well, m- more money came from petrol companies, and that actually replaced the tourism operation. That's one story. Then there was another lodge called Gareno Lodge. Gareno Lodge was uh, a little bit closer, actually, to the Andes, not in the Yasuni National Park, but. You could reach it from uh, the area of the Napo. And, and to give a reference, the city of Tena is the biggest city in that area. Now, to get to Gareno Lodge, of course, it was a few, it was uh, like a day in. And um, the reason that lodge closed was actually one of the, the elders of the Waurani tribe, take into account that you know an elder that's seven years old has the equivalent physical strength of a 30-year-old anywhere else and, and stamina was a bit drunk and he actually tried to attack the Dutch manager that was running the lodge, you know, that was mm. managing it for them and helping them and to manage it. So one of his grandchildren actually had to intervene and talk with him. And, and all he could say to the Dutch guy was run. And basically he had to run out of there and they, they distracted this, uh, this leader, you know, and basically the, the 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 people that were running the lodge together with the water just left and they didn't go back. So it's a tribe that, you know, it, it becomes, they, they can become aggressive from a moment to another. Now you can't blame them for that. It's just that, you know, it's their way of being. And maybe there, you know, there's traditions or there's certain, um, there's certain, let's say, uh, rules in their social interaction that not everybody understands. There's a fine line. It's it's my understanding that the Warani live in settlements. Are these uh, settlements that they established, or settled settlements uh, established by the government? Uh, talk to us about that, and how much involvement do the Warani have in uh, self-rule? I guess. Well, they're in an, the the nations in the Amazon. They're independent nations. They have their own indigenous law so they have their own ruling they can decide you know within their community and in their community grounds how to treat anything law justice uh, marriage or anything it's done under their law hmm. but uh, but there's still a, a faction of Wawarani who have not necessarily had any interaction or ever been touched by the outside world is that correct Absolutely, the little, very little touch they've had is the, the, it, the this part of the Waurani is the Taromenani, and they, are, they have actually had very little interaction, and that interaction was, you know, these killings, and and it has been, 
you know, or violent interaction with oil companies or anything in, in that sense of the word. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, it's not been a, a friendly interaction. They, they don't agree with it. And they're actually their protest or their rebelness, uh, you know, against interaction with, you know, outside communities has actually led them at some point to attack other Waurani communities. And, and because in between, you know, Waurani communities, there is the law is, you know, somebody gets killed, there has to be a revenge. And it is basically, that's part of their life philosophy. So it's a different, you know, understanding in that sense. Now, even, the Waurani, go ahead, sorry. I'm sorry, even a non-Waurani, if, if somebody, a non-Waurani gets killed, there's uh, uh, revenge is enacted? Well, no, I wouldn't, no, 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 no. Because if it's a non-Waurani, I mean, well, basically, at this point in time, there's very few communities of the Waurani. There's very few uh, segments of the Waurani people that are actually allowing people to visit them. It's not a run as a lodge anymore. It's actually homestays. But, you know, to be honest, I run a travel company. And uh, due to the background they have and everything, and, you know, the unstableness of their or unpredictability, I would not actually, I would not recommend taking tourists to the Waurani because, you know, you never know what could happen at some point in time. Mm-hmm. Basically, yeah. you know, it's a, it's something, you know, it's a very hard to understand. Now, there is other communities in Ecuador, like, you know, the Shuar, the Achuar, the Kofan, the Quechuas. And they're all, I mean, they're all very friendly and, 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 and actually are very open to tourism and are actually promoting themselves around the world to receive tourists. And they have some beautiful projects in the Amazon basin. But I, I, again, the Waurani are have at some point opened up there is companies that are at the moment are offering trips to visit them but again i would not um, due to their unpredictability i would not really feel comfortable sending travelers there yeah as a, just to, to close on that small part i mean when uh, the waurani ecology was open it was never a problem and it was open for several years the issue came down to petrol dollars being stronger than tourism dollars so that could be a friendly community, but at the same time, you know, to venture out and, you know, convince them to receive tourists and everything, you know, if they're not looking for it openly and they're not coming out, I don't see a reason to go into them, you know, and, um, you know, ruining their establishment in a way. Because, you know, although you could say, oh, these guys are aggressive and all that, why are they like that? You know, this should not be right. Well, who are we to judge? They have another philosophy, another way of life, another belief system. And right now, they prefer not to be contacted. Now, their endangerment is actually because of petrol companies coming into the territories or, you know, the need of the government of Ecuador and the country of Ecuador to establish, you know, um, let's say to produce earnings maybe or, you know, uh, fund, uh, fund the country in a, in a way, you know, to produce money for the country, if you want to say in, in very, like, you know, like very humble terms and uh, that need is actually extending into the Amazon or into other areas. And, you know, some of that territory that is belongs to the Waurani is all, of course, it's, it's looked at with a lot of greedy eyes because they say, well, there's petrol there, there's resources there. We should be able to access it. You know, they're part of the country. They are part of the citizenship of the country. So, I mean, they have their land, but, you know, they can have entire ownership of it. You know, it, it, it is government land. So we should be able to, you know, just extract the petrol, leave them with their land, but the petrol can be extracted. So those are the, the you know, the, the, the trials this tribe has. Yeah. And why I, I say they're endangered. I mean, I thought, I thought that land was also protected. 
um, as well. It is. It is. It's part of the Yasuni National Park. But also the last petrol exploitation is within the Yasuni National Park, you know, within the Ecuadorian border. So, wow. it, so it, it is protected land, but, you know, when the government needs to find petrol there and they need to exploit it, they will they'll find a way around it. They said that they would do it in an ecological way, you know, opening a very small path, putting the pipeline in, not making any damage, and, and extracting just the petrol. Mm-hmm. From what I know, there hasn't been any, you know, environmental disaster. There hasn't been any leakage from this pipeline so far. It's a very new pipeline, I would say about five years or, or so. Um, but at the same time, you know, it you don't know how long that's going to be before something happens there. On the other hand, and this is very, I mean, it was very sad to see that, you know, some of the workers that were going in, they were showing pictures of, you know, uh, anacondas they had hunted and stuff like that, that, you know, that they, that they didn't have a conscious towards eco, I mean, you know, towards the environment. And this is, don't get me wrong, actually, this is a very small part of Ecuador's population or even, you know, outsiders that were hired by the Ecuadorian government to open this route, you know, to get the petrol line in there. Now, mm-hmm. after that happened, there hasn't been any notices of any eco damages or anything like that. It's been exploiting, the petrol's been exploited out without any issues. Now, here's another small fact. Now, this is on Ecuador's side. Now, the Yasuni Park extends actually, not necessarily known as Yasuni Park anymore, but in into the Peruvian border. And from the Peruvian border, actually the Peruvian government was reaching in to these oil reserves through their border, you know, underground. So it was going to be exploited anyway. So then that's when Ecuador decided to exploit it openly. But this is more like, you know, this is more, I mean, it is more something that, you know, that is like local knowledge and open up completely. So um, I know there are efforts to help preserve uh, the the Warani's uh, land uh, and their culture and heritage. Talk about some of those efforts and why it's important to help the survival of a a, a group of people who um, do not want any you know, who want it to, to remain self-contained. I mean, how, yeah, can, no, how can we do that? Yeah. Well, the Guarani have won legal battles, you know, to actually uh, protect their land. You know, they're, they're in, um, they, they have actually, uh, I mean, they have had trials. They, 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 they've beaten the Ecuador government in court, you know, to, to stop oil blocks. But, Again, this is, you know, this is with uh, international support from several uh, foundations. Marcel, what's the biggest threat to the Walrani people today? That, that, their, that, their, that their area, their territory, start being populated or start being used to exploit oil, and it gets reduced. You see, they're nomads, and they're hunters. They do not actually, they have very little... Um, they have very little settlements with crops, you know, at most manioc roots and things like that for carbohydrates. But most of the time they're hunting and they're moving around. So if they're hunting, they have to move around. They have to find territory that, because, you know, the animals will, 
if, if they stay in only one area, the animal life will get depleted. So th right. it, it's something, that's what really they, they have. Now they have an area that's about 20,000 square kilometers. That's huge. But still, it's 7,700 miles, but you know, and this is rainforest. Another thing is, you know, the other threat they have is parts of their community, deserters, if you want to say, you know, they want to go into civilization and they will leave the community, won't go back. So the population starts growing smaller. And I mean, some Waurani that live outside of the um, outside, they, some of them are allowed to come back. Some of them are not in certain communities. And when they come back, they come back civilizing, if you want to put it in, in, in a very, I mean, improper word, the rest. Mm. And that actually takes away, you know, the original traditions. So that's, I think that's a little bit about their, their background, you know, and, and what I've been able to uh, learn about them. Very little, but because uh, again, it's, it's not a tribe that, you know, you, you have much information about. Now, I am curious because they have had contact with uh, travelers, uh, documentary crews, and so forth. Uh, clearly, uh, they have to have knowledge about these folks, and there has to be some education, particularly with those who are choosing to leave. What kind of education is taking place within the Warani community? Well, within the ones that are non-contacted, they don't. Uh, no, they they don't go through a formal education at all. Okay, but what about the segment that uh, you just said? has been leaving and so the numbers have been diminishing so what's happening with those people in terms well, of they COVID? they in, they integrate into society mm -hmm. you know in towns like kokai they will integrate into society and and all children in the country are have a, have a form the, the parents have a formal obligation to send them to school at least okay. to continue can complete primary school so if they're outside of the community they have to go to school and that is that is by law and and, and then, of course, once they've gone to school, they've been in contact with other kids. I, I think they, 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 they stopped being part of the, the Warani community for one thing. To learn more about the Warani people, there are links on our website on this show page at worldfootprints.com. You know, dear, one of the things I know about myself, I'm a lifelong learner. I love learning about other cultures and experiencing them from inside their communities. And certainly when we travel to New York, I really want to learn more about the Hasidic community and with, uh, with Frida and explore Brooklyn in a way that uh, we never have. And, you know, I was excited before talking to Marcel about the possibility of an immersion experience with the uh, Warani people in uh, Ecuador. Uh, but now I understand that those encounters uh, first could be dangerous and, and really they're unwanted. Um, and so out of respect, I think where I feel I can be of service is to share the message um, to leave them be and allow them to live their lives as they have uh, traditionally and encourage people not to invade their territory. One of the things about both of these communities is that uh, from a tourism perspective, 
that's not their focus. These folks are interested in living their lives, and really the, the tourists are interlopers into their places, whether it's uh, you know through uh, organized tours or just through natural curiosity. And I think sometimes we have to respect the fact that just because we're out there wanting to see and explore doesn't necessarily give us the right to uh, embroach on other cultures and other civilizations just to say, hey, I've, I've had a moment with them. It's almost, you know, objectifying people in a way that we don't really need to. And so I think that we need to have a lot more respect. And, and, and I like the fact that we have two tour people in Frida and Marcel who understand these communities and and know how to approach them and allow visitors to at least see them from an from an honest, honorable and respectful way. Right. And you know, just as we've shared in previous shows, um, the one we did on volunteerism and, you know, the what did we title that? The um, the bad side of doing good. Uh, and just the imposition that we we may make in communities that we're trying to help. You know, this is kind of the along the same vein, uh, imposing our values on on others, and uh, and so I'm I'm really appreciative of the messages that Frida and Marcel shared, and I know that we have done our our bit in in trying to uh, preserve a community and maybe help understand another one better. And with everything that's going on right now with the coronavirus and COVID-19 around the world, it's impacting tourism. And so it really gives us a chance to really step back and reflect about how tourism should go forth in years to come as well. So as we close, I'd like to leave you with the words of American author Henry Miller. One's destination is never a place, but a new way of seeing things. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're honored that you chose to take this adventure with us. Thank you for spending this time and allowing us to connect you to the world through the stories we share on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Pandora, Alexa, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Public Radio Exchange, and many more. Connect with the world with a deeper understanding through powerful stories. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and compelling articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter and receive a free gift. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast. The views and opinions expressed on the podcast and website are those of the guests and authors and are not necessarily endorsed by World Footprints LLC.